When it comes to writing songs in the world of musical theater, composer-lyricist Gabby Alter remains committed to getting it right. I gotta keep it together. The process of serving the story, how a character can change over the course of a song, and making smart musical choices are key components that Alter continues to explore when it comes to writing music for the stage. I got to keep holding on with both my hands to keep myself from flying away. Keep holding on with both my hands. His most notable works include the musicals Band Geeks, Stars of David, and the New York critically acclaimed hit Nobody Loves You, which he co-wrote with Tony Award-winning playwright Itamar Moses. In this episode, Alter looks back on how he fell into the world of writing musicals with a group of high school friends in his hometown of Berkeley, California. His decision to move to New York, how he and his writing partner pitched Disney to write for the animated feature Tinkerbell and the Pirate Fairy, his work as a solo artist under the name Yes Gabriel, and the development of a new musical that takes place in East Berlin during the Cold War in the 1970s. I'm Charles Urich, and this is Life in the Grooves. Here is my conversation with Gabby Alter. So as a kid, you gravitated towards musicals, and was there one show or a soundtrack album that really caught your attention? Yeah, I think the first musical that caught my ear was the Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat album. My family is Jewish, and so I knew that narrative about Joseph and the Dreamcoat and how, uh, you know, how he was captured or I guess sold to the Egyptians and like this whole plot. So I, I kind of connected with that. But also the music was just great. It was very it's great for kids too. that musical. It's, it's very simple, but it definitely drew me in. And I remember sitting at the piano and plunking out the melodies. This was before I took piano lessons, but I was, you know, I had some musical sense. And so I was really curious to try the melodies. And then I think a, a neighbor like a friend of the family showed me one, four, five chords, you know, like CFG. And he says, oh, these chords are the basis of pop music. Um, that was the first musical that drew me in. Obviously, I didn't see it until I was much older. In fact, I don't, I don't even remember if I did see it. I'm pretty sure I did. But, you know, I kind of would just picture it in my mind. Were you more drawn to these soundtrack albums and that type of music as opposed to like popular music? Or were you a fan of both? I really thought of musicals like so that that album, you know, since it was sitting around my house, <laughs> uh, I was really into it. But I didn't really get into music for a while. Um, I, I guess like a lot of kids until I was a teenager or probably like 11 or 12. I didn't really, you know, understand much about popular music itself. I did, however, go to a school where we would put on musicals. We put on Wizard of Oz. Uh, we did Fiddler on the Roof. And we did Oliver at some point. You know, I loved being in them because I liked acting and I liked getting attention. <laughs> uh, 
And um, <laughs> outside of the performances of them, I wasn't that interested in listening to them. Like I wasn't like a musical theater head. Um, but the experience of that, you know, kind of like the group mm -hmm. doing this thing and the songs are really fun and you get everybody loves it at the end. Like all of that was an important part of my growing up. And um, when I was 11, I got into pop radio. And at that point, that's really what shaped, you know, the majority of my musical aesthetic as far as songs were, were what was on the radio uh, when I was listening, you know, in the 80s and the 90s and, um, and then listening back to earlier eras of pop and rock music. So those were really what I, you know, I sort of could grab onto as, as far as my stylistic guideposts. I want to take a few steps back because you mentioned earlier that you were able to plunk out chords that you learned by ear. But when did you start formal training? I started formal training for piano when I was seven. I mean, it was not very heavy. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't trying to train to be a classical pianist as a profession, but, um, but you know, I got the basics and then I had a few different teachers. They were all pretty good in different ways. And I got, you know, as far as like sort of intermediate, maybe piano, uh -huh. you know, I never, I didn't want to practice four hours a day and nobody asked me to. Um, so, you know, so I got, I got somewhere. And then by the time I was in high school, I was starting to figure out pop songs. And then there was this great, uh, jazz program at Berkeley high. And I got really excited about the idea of being in the jazz band and, you know, watching people play jazz up close was amazing. So these, these people were really good. So I, I aspired to that. And when I was a senior, I got to become the pianist for the ensemble. And that was really thrilling. Mm -hmm. You know, by the end of it, I was like, yeah, I'm not really cut out to be like a jazz person, uh -huh. but I did love playing music and, and improvising. When I was preparing for this conversation, I found that you were very entrepreneurial in those post-high school years where you actually started self-producing and creating your own shows. Yeah, well, I would say that I was part of a group of people. We had this, this uh, very creative community that came out of Berkeley High, primarily. Uh, my friend Dominic Ma you know, he was the one that generated it initially. He was like, let's let's do a musical, let's do a rock musical. And he kind of pulled the people from that he knew who did theater at Berkeley High. And I got together the people that had been in a rock band with me in high school. So we kind of put that together. And yeah, we just we just kept doing it. I mean, Dominic really was was the entrepreneurial force there, but um, but I was certainly happy to be part of it. And, you know, I was the composer. And um, and I really love working with him, collaborating on stuff with other people. And I still find that that's, you know, that's sort of my happiest place. I know you, I know your medical history. Me, I have a psych degree. Maybe I can help. I know you don't have to be told. And I know you aren't dumb. I can give you something for the cold. Making it a little less
Now, we were just listening to an example of a track called Accept a Pet from one of your musicals called Earth Verses, a project that you uh, co-wrote with your partner, Dominic Ma. Since it doesn't fall into that traditional musical theater style, did you have something in mind when the two of you were developing this piece? You know, no. Like, I think all of the Emerald Rain productions we really didn't see ourselves as coming out of the musical theater tradition at all. Like we sort of were, we felt ourselves like opposed to it. Now these are the post high school years, right? Yeah. So this was 1993 uh, and we were all home for the summer. Um, Dominic had just graduated. I'd come back from a gap year. So I hadn't started college yet, but Uh I had been away. Um, And, you know, it was this kind of really intense reunion. Also there was this, thing that had just happened um a friend of ours from high school had been killed um earlier that mm, year wow uh named Gabe and um you know he was close to a lot of us he was kind of an amazing person mm-hmm. um very creative kind of brilliant very funny very charismatic uh and it was just a terrible you know sort of wrong place at the wrong time thing and i think that had really created this intense energy of community You know, it's like where there's death, there's like this sort of intense desire for life. And also we were like 18 and 19 years old. So you can kind of imagine this kind of like crazy, not crazy, but very. Yeah, it could be very traumatic for someone at that age to lose uh, to lose such close friends. Yeah, it was very traumatic, but it really kind of like pushed us closer together and created Uh this sort of reinforced the bonds that we had. And I think that actually was part of the experience of writing that musical. There was this sort of like life-giving community Mm -hmm. energy, like we're going to create this thing. Um, So we did. And yeah, it was just a very good experience. Now, you also worked with Damien Hess during that period, who today is better known as the rapper MC Frontalot. Mm-hmm. Now, was he part of that inner circle of friends that you grew up with in Berkeley? We, well, yeah, we became friends in high school, um, you know, basically like, like the other people that were part of Emerald Ring. We all were friends in high school. And is it true that you were recording demos on a um, four-track recorder? Yeah. Yeah, so Damien, who, you know, now has a career as a, a rapper and basically has been you know home recording but digitally for i don't know 20 years now and actually when i had a band we uh called dorothy's not home in high school uh damien recorded demos of us so he was really into home recording as well as archiving things so he recorded our demos with a four track and then when we started doing the musicals he would record every musical on the four on four track like he would post one of the you know either the whole run of the show or one of the shows he would just get the band together and then we would record the instrumental tracks onto the four track tape like you know the fresh in our minds we had just performed them and then he would have people sing over it and that was just part of the process but it did really start with the four track and it started mostly with Damien um, just figuring stuff out you know figuring out how to record our musicals
From the musical Young Zombies in Love, that is Life Ahead of Us, a track that was co-written by Damien Hess and my guest today, Gabby Alter. Now, in this particular show, there are pop and funk and soul sensibilities. Uh, when you and Damien were, were working on that together, was there a particular genre or a, a style that you had in mind? You know, no, like, you know, it was just the stuff that we were into. Um, and that we thought would be cool and fun. We didn't really think in terms of, oh, we want it to sound like this person or that person. Um, I mean, Damien wrote about half the songs on that mm-hmm. soundtrack. And um, so, I, yeah, I just I think we just grabbed what we liked from pop culture and pop music, and we would just, you know, say, okay, well, we can do this. You know what I mean? Like, no one's stopping us. And our our aesthetic is a... I mean, I would kind of describe it almost as like a mixtape aesthetic of just like different different genres that it's like whatever felt like it fit the moment and was fun and inspiring to us. And we did three versions of it. We brought it to the Fringe Festival in New York City. We were like super beloved by people who came to the Fringe Festival because it's it was a great Fringe show at the time for that time period. I think people really... Uh, dug the aesthetic and several people went on from that to become you know very successful so you uh took a year off after graduating high school you you referred to it as a gap year yeah you uh traveled all the way to the east coast uh, attended wesleyan university where was your head and what were you doing musically at that point in your life right so when i was going to wesleyan I mean, mainly I spent my time at Wesleyan taking academic courses, uh-huh. um, very much like just based on like a, you know, getting a humanities kind of well-rounded humanities education right. or what, what I or we thought at the time was that, you know, so I took a lot of courses in those three departments. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, I was trying to get something of an education about the world. You know, I took a Latin American history course. I took a Chinese history course. I was just trying to sort of learn different things, but I also didn't know what I wanted to do. But what I was doing musically at the time, I mean, I was, I was writing these musicals, honestly, during the summer Mm -hmm. as a creative outlet, but I was also meeting people at Wesleyan, these really, really talented musicians, some of whom became my friends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're just around them, you, you get influenced by people. Um, you know, my friend Anand Nayak, who is, uh, uh, musician in Northampton and he's an amazing guitarist and vocalist and my friend Brandon Patton Mm -hmm. and uh you know we just like we were in a we cover we were in a world music cover band together global music cover band so I just was getting influenced the steel drum band which was super fun to play in I mean if you've never played in a steel drum band it's a super fun like it's like a high you know because the you're part of this like great like not crazy but just amazing sounding ensemble so, yeah, I think I was just being influenced by things more than anything. And, and then when I would go home in the summers, I would try writing stuff. And like, I remember when I was 20, I spent half of the summer with Anand and Brandon and these other musicians. And then I went home and wrote Vapor Tales. I, I remember just being around them. It was like, oh, God, these guys are so good. Like it forced my brain to do things that were better because I, I had this awareness of how they might hear it because they were incredibly gifted musicians. So I, I just, I think just, just that forced me to write better songs. Used to live on exit road, waiting for the crash. 
All my doubt and trouble would just vanish in a flash. Used to watch the video till I was near insane. I took my paid vacation and I never left the plane. If it is needed, an oxygen mask will drop from the compartment above your seat. To start the flow of oxygen, pull the mask towards your face. Place the mask over your nose and mouth. Although the bag is not inflating, oxygen is flowing. You're listening to the music of Gobby Alter, with a tune that he composed for the musical Vapor Tales called Airline Safety. Now, when did things begin to turn for you in terms of making the decision to further develop your craft? I mean, you ultimately ended up at New York University's um, Tisch School of the Arts. Yeah. So I decided in 2003, but it was sort of a year-long decision. I, I was near the end of my 20s, and I talked to people, and people were like, okay, so you need to move to Los Angeles or New York if you want a career in music, because those are the hubs. And I was like, okay, I visited both cities. I decided New York was more to my liking. Uh, I came out in 2003. Um, but then what happened was, you know, I also didn't know what the hell I was going to do in New York, but I heard about the NYU program and I never thought about going to like school. I was like, I don't need to go to school to learn how to write musicals. I've been doing it for, you know, 10 years. But, um, but then suddenly I was alone in New York. I didn't know what I was doing with myself. Um, so suddenly that started to seem a lot more interesting. Like, oh, I could go back to school and, you know, I have no idea if this is a good idea or not, but so I, I went and I visited the program and I thought it was a little weird, like, I, especially cause I was really unfamiliar with contemporary musical theater. Um, I was familiar with like Oliver and, uh, Fiddler on the Roof and Joseph and the Tech, you know, stuff I, yeah, more traditional stuff and stuff I'd heard growing up, but I was like, okay, but I thought it was interesting and I felt like I should give it a shot. And I also remember thinking, I just don't want to go to work and like, just not know what I'm doing, but just be working some random job. So I went to the program um, and it turned out to be amazing. I mean, it's, it's amazing also because of the people who were there with me, you know, it was like, I was there, I happened to be there the year. um, So I was in my first year when like Joe Iconis and Michael R. Jackson were in their second year. Um, There were a a bunch of other, I mean, those people are the sort of more, the most blatantly successful people from that time period. But, you know, it was like just those guys, like in Bill Finn's class, like seeing what they were capable of. Again, it was like being in college when I was living with Anand and Brandon being like, oh, these guys are really good. And I was like, oh my God, like these guys just are really, they're, they're knocking these songs out of the park and they're creating a kind of musical theater that's very, you know, that speaks to me uh, and is very contemporary and like, like never before done. Um, and that I think helped to, sh- to allow me to see that there was a way for me to come into musical theater that was not just as like, I'm against it, you know, or like, I'm just trying to do pop music on stage, but like, oh, but these people are doing this in a way that I really like and can relate to. And so I, I definitely took some inspiration from them. Um, and I learned more about musical theater and sort of the idea of like having to justify your artistic choices more and, uh, yeah. And, and, um, Bill Finn was a good teacher. I mean, he's a very intense guy and, um, but he would always tell you what he thought. 
which maybe was the first time somebody had been that blunt uh, in my life. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is no good. And he was right. You know, he would, he'd be honest with you. So um, so that kind of pushed me. Welcome to New York. Exactly. Welcome to New York. There are people <laughs> can tell you exactly what they think. And it's going to be a little traumatizing. But uh, one thing that he did do was he, you know, he pushed people to, to write from themselves. And so if you wrote something that was from yourself, but also had like a lot of craft and rhymed well and stuff, he, he really responded to that. And I was like, oh, I guess I've never really thought about that before. So I started to write songs like Deep in February, Orphan Thanksgiving that were assignment songs, but that, you know, I would just write about whatever I was going through, um, you know, with a bunch of rhymes and parts that were completely made up and whatever. But, you know, I mean, that's basically art, right? It's like you kind of half of it is like you lied about you make up lies, but you're lying in order to get to some larger truth. But it's also based on your experience. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the process of writing a musical because it's a very different discipline from writing a pop song. Exactly. Because you're having to serve the story and the characters. And I want to know if you could tell our audience a little bit about yeah. that process. Sure. So writing musical is very different from writing a pop song. Um, I didn't really understand the difference and I wasn't really paying attention prior to going to NYU. I mean, I probably understood on some level, but I... I was just doing stuff instinctively and figured that was good enough. But, you know, NYU did focus more on the idea of how do you tell a story and what happens? Like, what's the function of the song and is your character different at the end of it? And they started giving these examples of how characters change or maybe are starting to change during a song. Or, you know, if it's an I want song, it's like it's telling you who the person is. So basically, like, it, yeah, advancing stories either by learning about a character or seeing a character make a decision. And I just had never put that together as part of a song, um, that, that kind of idea of movement in the song. And obviously there's movement in pop songs too. I mean, I don't, I don't understand them as well in some way, or at least how to do them. But, but I do understand that, you know, you need things to change within a pop song so that, but basically you're kind of coming back to one thing over and over, right? That's the verse chorus structure. Uh, whereas the original musical theater structure was A-A-B-A. -A -A, so it's like, it's not, it's like the A is kind of a chorus, but it changes during the song, like somewhere over the rainbow. So, you know, it gets more intense. Uh, whereas m often in pop songs, the lyrics stay more or less the same during the choruses. That's important that they do that. Um, so I think understanding that um, is important. And yes, as you said, the the process of serving the story. I mean, just the idea that you always are telling the story with the song. So, you know, that includes all of the musical choices that you're making at any moment that they have to kind of line up and express character or express, uh, you know, the world that you're in. Uh, and that, you know, that was, that's really different. Um, the other thing about musicals that's really different from pop songs, I guess, is that you end up writing a bunch of songs and then, you know, and then the plot changes, you gotta throw them out. 21, was I really ever 21? 21, it was so long ago in yesterday, when I was only 21. That's when they tell you that your life's begun. That's when they tell you that you can become whatever you want, 21. 
So that is the song 21 from your project called 29, which was your uh, thesis project at NYU Tisch. Tell me about that experience. I actually wrote the song 21, which is the opener of the show. I wrote it before I went to Tisch, uh, uh, just alone in my apartment the first year I was in New York. And um, I didn't know why I was writing it, except it was about me. You know, it was about I'm 29 and I haven't accomplished X, Y, Z and what did I do with my time? And, you know, so this sort of sense of pressure and that became the theme of the song cycle. Mm -hmm. So 29 is a song cycle about growing up in my 20s, one's 20s. You know, in a way, I thought of it almost like a concept album. And my friend Tommy Newman and I wrote it together. So for the uh, benefit of our listeners, can you just give us a little bit of background on Tommy? Sure. Tommy Newman is my friend and a very talented musical theater writer. He wrote Band Geeks with me, uh-huh. and it it was my senior thesis. So you write a musical your second year at Tisch. Now, because this is a uh, song cycle and not a um, full-blown book musical, is there still some type of story arc? Um, there is a kind of general arc of people kind of going through their 20s in the show uh-huh. and having these moments where they have to deal with something that you deal with as a young adult Um, and then it ends with them singing the song 29 which is about how they're you know now looking over past their 20s into their 30s and beyond talk about another show that you also co-wrote with Tommy Newman called Band Geeks and uh, this is a show that is very popular among high schools, uh, community theaters as well as professional theater groups and I was uh, just curious if this was the first commercially successful show of yours that was um, officially licensed for those types of groups to put on. Yes, yes, Band Geeks is my first uh, licensed show and we started it after NYU. You know, we had just finished the program. I think maybe we waited a year, maybe six months to a year. Yeah, because I think we were talking about the concept. Uh, Tommy had, you know, so had the idea in his mind. Uh, Gordon Greenberg got involved as a director because we had been talking with Goodspeed Musicals about them developing it with us. And um, so they recommended Gordon as somebody to help direct, sort of direct the process and shape it. And um, so we worked about a year on it, and then we did it. We did the first act at the Goodspeed New Works Festival, and at that point, Gordon started writing the book with Tommy. And we worked on it for about three or four years. So it kind of went quick, quickly for a musical. It's very popular among uh, high schools, uh, I think some colleges and smaller theaters, and it's been done a 
bunch of times. Now, the song that we just heard called Lost in the Brass, featuring the very talented Lindsay Mendez, um, is very popular with actors in the audition process. So what is it about this song that makes it a uh, good audition song? Well, I think, I think it's a song that, A, it, it kind of um, it showcases somebody's belting. Uh-huh. Um, and it's an I want song. It's a very clear I want song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's also about a yearning to, you know, break out and shine and and become. It's like a you know, it's like the humble person who wants to escape their small town, and and I think that also is something that a lot of musical theater actors relate to. Mm-hmm. Again, because of the way that Tommy wrote the melody and the idea of it, it really it's sort of like this character who's just bursting with, you know, longing and power, and they're not apologizing. They're not like a victim to their their life they, they just want to you know they just want a chance to get out there and and do what they do now in 2019 you self-produced an ep under the name yes gabriel right and i was wondering what prompted you to um, step away from writing for musical theater and explore more of the um, singer-songwriter aspect of your musical career well i think i think i was always there and i think i always came back in my mind to wanting to do some kind of non-musical theater album. And I had never, hadn't done too many recordings where I was super happy with how they turned out. I, I mean, not, nothing against the people that were involved, but I just always found like, oh, I it didn't, you know, like like music that I love and that we listen to as pop music is always very produced. It's not just how the instruments are played, but how they're produced. So I was always really interested. In, it's like, how do you create those effects uh, and of course, I had done a bunch of home recording with Damien, but he was always the producer. So I was not, you know, sort of fully in the captain's seat. Um, I had a breakup uh, that happened actually a really long time ago, 2008. But uh, it took a long time to sort of really close the door on that relationship for me mentally. And then when I did, I, you know, I had these songs that I'd written about it and kind of just trying to process it. So that eventually became the Yes Gabriel EP. And I got very into the idea of like how you do a recording as opposed uh-huh. to a live arrangement of a song. So what did you discover about the process when you were making the record? Uh, you know, one thing I found doing that album is that I, you know, because again, I had this experience of never being fully satisfied with recordings I made that I would sometimes have to like like as with musical theater where you throw out songs instead of throwing out the song I would throw out an arrangement and I would do a totally different arrangement and sometimes that really made the song come alive in a different way when it was over you boarded a westbound plane said you couldn't take a New York winter again I turned the covers over ready to start anew I didn't 
realize the thing my heart would do Cause you left your feather earring in my bed Behind my pillow, the shape of your head I didn't realize how far you'd taken me But love has consequences you can't foresee From his 2019 debut EP, Yes, Gabriel, you're listening to the music of my guest today, Gabby Alter with Dear to Me. I want to turn now to your um, collaboration with Itamar Moses. Now, I understand that he also grew up in Berkeley, California as well. Did the two of you meet at school? Yeah, so Itamar and I are actually kind of like family friend cousins. You know, we went to uh, Thanksgiving together. We, uh, you know, we sometimes we go over to each other's houses. I was between his age and his sister's age. She's a little older than me, and he's like a few mm-hmm. years younger. So he was sort of like a younger cousin when I was growing up. And then he, you know, then he went to Yale and started writing plays. And he saw the musicals that I was doing, right? Like he would, he was still in high school when I was doing these productions with my friends. So I think he thought that was really cool, and that probably inspired him in some ways around theater, which he was already being inspired by like Tony Kushner and different people. But eventually when we were, we just never lived in the same place really. And then we were in New York together uh, when he was 26 or 27, I was 29. We were like, yeah, we should write a musical together. What should we write about? And he had this idea about reality TV. We kind of thought we wanted to do something that was like part of the popular culture. And he had worked on this uh, unrealized musical. They had they had sort of abandoned it that featured a reality TV show as part of it, I think. And so he was fascinated with this idea of fame, like not just fame, but like why do people feel the need to have their lives televised and and seen by other people for them to have meaning? And so I was like, yeah, that's an interesting question. And, you know, I can probably write some sort of pop influence songs. So we started writing it. He's also, Edomar is like really, really funny. Like one of the funniest people. I mean, you know, he worked on Boardwalk Empire, so you might not guess that. But he, but on the other hand, if you've seen, um, you've seen his Broadway musical, you know that he's completely hilarious. And in, in that musical, and that is very deadpan. And of course, you're talking about the band's visit. Yeah. Um, so it was so much fun to write with him because he would just come up with these really funny characters and scenes and. And I got to be, you know, riffing off of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so for the first, I think, three years of maybe even the first four years that we worked on Nobody Loves You, we just paid for the workshops ourselves for the most part. There was one one thing in Cape Cod where the Cape Cod Theater Project uh, paid to have a couple of public readings uh, with some great people. But um, people were sort of thought it was a flash in the pan idea because they thought reality TV itself was a flash in the pan. And of course it turned out to be like the most massive thing possible uh, that never goes away. So, I mean, Itamar was prescient in that way. And um, the artistic director at the time of the old globe had passed on it, but we had done a bunch of work. So Itamar had a personal relationship with him and was like, why don't you take a look at this again? It's much better. 
And he agreed and he agreed to sponsor a workshop. And at the workshop, he got really excited about it because it was a very funny workshop and the, the, the show was in a lot better shape. So he put it into the next season uh, and it did well in San Diego. And um, but it got pretty good reviews and then some really good reviews. And then um, Isherwood from The New York Times came, which we very much wanted him not to. But but you can't control people's behavior. He was in town to see Hands on a Hard Body. So he could have killed the show at that point, and he did not. Luckily, he thought it was really charming. Um, and at that point, we got a New York producer. We did it at Second Stage. And um, again, incredible experience. Now, the show was also revived in uh, 2017. I believe yes. you mentioned there was a production in Atlanta. That's right. Uh, we did it in Atlanta, and fingers crossed we will get a chance to do it again at a regional theater, and then, if we're very lucky, in New York. Uh, I think it's a really well-built show. You know, obviously we developed it over a decade, and um, it works. I hate the way that TV tries to engineer romantic moments. Not a single one's true. I hate that, too. What this show foments is phony. It's a hollow ceremony. I agree with you. And I hate the way that TV plies us with false promises of happiness. Unless that's just your shtick. It's not a shtick. See, I am planning to expose the show from inside the show as a corporate trick. Good luck. I hate songs about love. I'm so sick of unrealistic ideas about passion and fate. Oh, 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 oh. There's so much to hate. You should probably get back to your room. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, but I'll see you around. Maybe, uh, maybe not, but I'll see you. From the aforementioned New York Times and Time Out New York critically acclaimed musical, Nobody Loves You, that is the work of playwright Itamar Moses and my guest today, composer Gabi Alter with So Much to Hate. Now, the two of you also got a chance to work with Disney on the animated film Tinkerbell and the Pirate Fairy, composing the song The Frigate That Flies. Um, how did this all come about? Um, that came about through Nobody Loves You. Somebody from Disney Theatricals saw the National Alliance of Musical Theater Festival, which we did the year before we did the off-Broadway run. Uh -huh. And he thought it was such a great show. He thought it was so funny. And he talked to somebody, I guess, at the, in the animated division because they were looking for uh, someone to write this pirate song. And he was like, oh, yeah, like these guys are funny. <laughs> so, that, you know, that was like a, sort of a period of time when we were going off-Broadway that we you know, at least got some sort of just interest to, for us to do stuff. And, uh -huh. uh, but that was the biggest thing. And um, so we, you know, we pitched the song. We didn't get the song automatically. Mm. We weren't just hired. We had to like, you know, do a demo of the song. They did like it a lot. And so they used it. Now, I do happen to know that you have some new works currently in development, and um, one of those projects, full disclosure here, since I happen to be one of the uh, co-creators and producers, is a new musical set in Cold War East Berlin called Radio 930. What's that experience been like, and can you tell me a little bit about the development of the show? 
Yeah, so Radio 930, right? You were looking for a songwriter and would I write a pitch song Yep. as with the uh, Disney. And I had just, the year before, I think I had written like a lot of pitch music for this musical I didn't get. So I was a little mm-hmm. leery. I was like, well, I'll write like, you know, a song, half of a song. <laughs> Um, and you guys were generous, generous enough to say, or believed in me enough, I guess, that you're like, sure, you can do that. Yeah. And, and so basically the assignment was to see how you would approach uh, an I Want song for one of the main characters. Yeah. Uh, but I also want to point out that the show was originally developed as a jukebox musical. And uh, we wanted to transition away from that format because we believed we could um, create a more um, cohesive story by using original music. Right. And I mean, I, I like the idea of the musical a lot because I was like, oh, nobody's ever written a musical about East Germany. Um, and, you know, the fact that it was about people that were really into rock music uh, as a subversive force, I, I thought that was really interesting. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense to me as a musical. A lot of times people, when I talk to me about ideas for musicals, I'm like, maybe, but I'm probably not the person to write it. Or I just don't see why this has to be a musical. Like, like, why not just make it a play or a movie or something? But um, but I was like, yeah, this should be a musical. It's a plot about songs as a you know, liberatory force. And, and you know, I'm interested in that time period. Um, how would you describe the music you've created up to this point um, for a show that takes place in the late 1970s? Uh, there's really kind of two strands of music. There's the music of East German militaristic state. And I listened to Hans Einzler who wrote the national anthem of East Germany, as well as some other famous stuff. I listened to some Kurt Weill. So I was kind of looking for Germanic classical composers for that strand, sort of have some classical influence. Berlin, city behind a wall. So much is said, so much remains unspoken. In Berlin, houses and jobs for all, as long as the law remains unbroken to keep the order but i also wanted to kind of let myself do what i do you know sort of have a pop some kind of generalized pop sensibility that that's mine so i kind of filtered that through those things now you also had to create songs for a group of rebels which is um, part of that second strand of music Mm -hmm. Um, where did the inspiration come from and who were some of the influences right so with the bricks who are these uh pirate radio station, rock and roll loving uh, subversives. You know, I was looking towards the Ramones, pop punk, T-Rex. It was like I was looking for things that kind of had an urgency and drive and melodic sense. Berlin, city of fear and lies. Break them all down, cause we don't need them. Berlin, open your ears and eyes. This is the sound of real freedom. Turn on your radios and now you also tapped into your California roots by um, looking at bands like Fleetwood Mac. Uh, yes, definitely. I was looking at Fleetwood Mac. I think my older brother actually suggested that kind of gallop beat. But then I also was thinking of Stevie Nicks and like her, you know, her solo career. I just wanted somebody that was sort of that kind of like, I'm enticing you into this world of magic. What about how it feels not to know, to hang over the edge and then let go, to make up your own mind, not always have to not and agree. Do you know how it feels? 
for this project, I was really like trying to listen to artists and see, you know, well, what can I take from this artist mm -hmm. and what, you know, does it match with this character? Uh -huh. And um, Stevie Nicks kind of works for whatever reason. Yeah. And although I may be biased here, um, I would have to agree. Totally. I want to thank you for giving us such an in-depth look into your world, the world of musical theater, as well as your work as a solo artist. Gabi, thanks so much for joining me and for sharing your musical story. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for asking me. It's, a, it's fun to talk to you about it. My thanks to Gabi Alter for sharing his amazing musical journey with us. You can check out Gabi's music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon Music. And be sure to subscribe to our show by visiting our website at lifeinthegrooves.com or lifeinthegroovespodcast.com. Life in the Grooves is produced by Tour de Force Entertainment Group. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to share, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm Charles Urich. Thanks for listening.